I'd like to read you a scripture from John's Gospel, chapter 9. You could grab your notes if you'd like to. They should be in the um, bulletins that you were provided, or uh, you could just look on the screen here. But just take a look at this. It says, after this, John's Gospel, chapter 7, I mean. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews were there waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. It's like, come on, Jesus. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. And you can sort of hear a cynicism in what they were saying because it says even his own brothers didn't actually believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it what? Hates me. Because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going to the feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, what did Jesus do? Stayed in Galilee. Now, what an interesting passage. Of course, question comes, why should we study this, especially on celebration weekend? And I just say, here's why. Jesus is showing us something significant as a church. And that is that there is an inevitable head-on collision between himself and the world. Between himself and the way that the average person does things. And because there's an inevitable head-on collision between Jesus and the world, there will be an inevitable head-on collision between anyone who follows him and the world. In fact, I was thinking about this this week, and did you know if you begin to read through the Beatitudes, when it talks about, for example, you'll see the scriptures coming up, being merciful, you know, or being pure in heart, or it says we're to be peacemakers, But did you know, after it says these wonderful things, the very next beatitude is, let's take a look at it, verse 10. In fact, let's read it together. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's that saying? That's saying that there will be an inevitable head-on collision between anyone who follows Jesus and the world. So, a couple things. We shouldn't be surprised if that happens when people insult you, it says, or persecute you, even when people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Now, it says, first of all, we shouldn't be surprised if that happens, but the second thing that it's telling us is we also might just question ourselves because I'm going to say if there is no head-on collision between us and the world, if there is no head-on collision between us and our temptation, then we should probably ask the question, am I really following him? Hello? Because if you really try to live the way that Jesus did, you may be nailed the way he was nailed. If you really try and bring peace the way the Prince of Peace brought peace, well, what did the Prince of Peace get? War, thorns, nails. Now, a lot of Christians don't remember that. It's interesting because the other day, I was reading an article. There was a major Protestant denomination 
that came out with a study committee and they came out with a paper on sexuality. And in the paper, this is really interesting because in the paper they said that any sexual activity between two mutual consenting adults was fine, no matter who they are. But then the columnist went on in the article and he was saying, and I put this on the screen, I quote, he said, it's about time the church got in step. That's the way things are. It's about time the church got with it. Now, I I would just like to ask you, is it the job of the church? Well, what do you think the job of the church is? Because this article is revealing an assumption. Is it the job of the church to promote cultural leanings? Is it the job of the church to cheer the latest market trends? One person said once to me, The church has no right to hold up Christ and tell people how they should believe. But then you see, I want to think, well, what did Jesus do? Now, there's something really important as we begin to think about this stuff because because if you're here and you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, you are the church. If you're here and you haven't and you haven't come to believe in him, I hope you would, He is the hope of salvation, the hope of deliverance for all of us. We're all broken and messed up. But I want to say something about this issue of the world. And I want for you to write this down and let it sink deeply into your heart. You need to know this about Jesus. Jesus was against the world, but he was against the world for the world. See, because Jesus understood something about how the world is supposed to work. Jesus understands something about human beings, how human persons ought to act. So, yes, Jesus is against the world, but he's against the world for the world. And if you and I are for the world, if you and I are going to love the world fearlessly, then like Jesus, it just may be that we're going to be controversial. In fact, Jesus says to his brothers, let's look again. It says, the world cannot hate you. They didn't believe in Jesus, but what does he say? But it, it hates me. Isn't that interesting? Now, by the way, his brothers are a wonderful case study because they come to him and what do they say? They say, you got to get this. They say, hey, look, Jesus, if you want to be a person of influence, you know, If you want to really know how to play the game, if you want to win friends and influence people, here's what you got to do. You got to leave here. What are you doing in a backwater place like Galilee? They say, go to Judea. Let let your followers see these miracles. Listen, nobody who wants to be a public figure acts in secret. What are they saying? His brothers are saying to Jesus, little buddy, you have a lot of potential. You can do miracles, but Jesus, you don't know how to play the game. You don't know how to develop the right image. What does Jesus say? He turns around and he says, I'm sorry. I don't play the world's games. He says, the world has to hate me. And I just want to clarify. So let's start off with this. Because when we think about this, it confuses some people. So we have to begin to think about what does it mean? And what what do we mean, the church, when we say the world? What is that all about? The Greek word is the word cosmos. And it's really used in two different ways, so it's easy to misunderstand. You have it, for example, in John 12, where Jesus says, let's read this together. He says, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Or you've got that famous John 3, 16. Let's read this one together. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
And of course, you see in these scriptures, he's not hating the world. What is there? There's a love for the world. There's an affirmation for the world. There's a going out into the world. But the same writer, John, writes an epistle, and he says, let's look at this one. He says, and let's read this one together. It says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Same author. So you're like, well, is this a contradiction? And the answer is no. It's not a contradiction. In fact, if you would write this down, the world can mean a couple things depending on its context. Number one, write this down. Sometimes the world can mean the material human universe, meaning the earth, the physical, the human. In other words, it's not used the same way in every cases. And by the way, when God made the physical, when God made the material human world, God made it and he called it something. Do you remember what he called it? Good. You see this at the beginning. In fact, Timothy says it this way. It says, every creation of God you see is what? Good. It's all good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for then it is made holy by God's word and prayer. Now, unfortunately, In the church, there was a line of thinking that came in through syncretism over history. It was Greek thought that said, no, 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 the physical is bad. We shouldn't like the material. And so we see things like don't love the world, and we think it means, oh, don't love beauty and don't love the physical. It distorts our view of Scripture. In fact, this is why so many Christians are prudish about sex. In fact, how often growing up did you hear the church teach about sex? Not much. Because the church is really prudish. In our culture, we've actually come to teach our kids almost that sex is a nasty thing. We don't want to talk to them about it. God says, no, sex is good. How many praise God for that? Sex is good. The physical is good. Beauty is good. But the second way the world is used is not to talk about the physical world or the material world, but the world can actually mean in the scripture, write this down, the spirit of the world. The spirit of the world. And in that context, it means the thinking of the world or the system of thinking in culture. The trends of worldly thinking In fact, if you just write this down, I'll spell it out for you. If you want to know what worldly thinking is, it is exactly this. Write this down. Worldly thinking is a system of thinking in which the material world and the human world are ends in themselves. That's all it is. Meaning, what I see matters most, what I touch matters most, how I feel, that matters most. And it's like, get all you can while you can, because this is all you've got. So what is a worldly mindset? I'll say in short, as, you're, as you see, it's human world or means in an end in and of themselves. Let me say it another way. Write this down. A worldly mindset is then that the here and now is all that really matters. That's it. Or even that the here and now is all that there is. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you, this is what secularism is all about. And do you want to know the difference between a worldly mindset and a Christian mindset? As we think about who we're supposed to be the church on this vision weekend. Let me give you an illustration. I want you to imagine Joe and Jane, two people. Who's the guy's name? And the girl's name. And they walk into a room, and Joe sees 25 people. 
And by the way, Joe's concerned about his advancement. He's concerned about getting ahead. And he sees 25 people in the room. Now, Jane walks into the same room. She sees those 25 people, but Jane also sees 75 others that Joe can't see. Now, how will Joe and Jane act in that room? I'm going to tell you something. They're going to act very differently. Joe is going to walk right over things that Jane thinks are there. Joe is going to trample on people that Jane sees are there. On the other hand, Jane is going to sit and talk to spaces that Joe thinks are empty. Jane will think that Joe is blind. <laughs> Joe will think that Jane is crazy. Why? I'm going to tell you why. It's because Jane sees more of reality than Joe does. And if you want to know what a Christian mindset is, what's the difference between a Christian person and a worldly person? Well, how much of reality are you really seeing? See, because the Christian says the real world of time and space, the physical is only part of the real world. It's wonderful but it's only part of the whole. Surrounding us is this unseen world. So while a worldly mindset, let me say it again, a worldly mindset says the here and now is all that matters, Christians say, no, 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 I don't just look to the seen, but I look to the unseen, not just time, but eternity. So what's the Christian mindset? The Christian mindset is the here and now is only part of what matters. You following me? Is there anybody here this morning? See, this has huge implications for how we live in culture because the Christian has a radically different way of doing everything. By the way, this is why our statistics matter when we, when we talk as a church about 40 people completing five semesters with Pastor Steve at NBI. I mean, that's awesome because we know that they're digging into God's word, God's eternal word. The same word that he spoke the universe into existence, people are meditating on, studying on, growing from. That 131 people would go through core classes to begin to learn what membership to a community is about, what it looks like to grow in relationship with Jesus Christ. That so many dozens of people so far in our first six months would be baptized. That 42 couples would say, we want to heal our marriage and we want to covenant together after Jesus Christ. Isn't that worth celebrating? It's awesome. And so many other things. And, but the reason this matters is because we realize that the physical world, the here and now, it's only part of reality. Let me give you another illustration. You know, I used to work for a Fortune 500 company and when I worked for that company, the corporation, here's what they said. They said, we're going to help the community, and we're going to give to charities, and we're going to develop our employees. They had what's called a wellness program. Anybody have those? A wellness program. Here's what they said. We're going to give to charity, we're going to help the community, but they said only as far as we can demonstrate to our own satisfaction that it's going to help us make more money. Now, I'm going to tell you what that is. That is a philosophy of life that factors out eternity. In other words, the bottom line, the only line, is your profit, here and now. What is worldliness? Listen to me, friend. You want to write this down. What is worldliness? It's not in your notes. Just write it down on the side. Worldliness is nowism. Worldliness is hereism. In fact, say it this way. Did you know that one of the biblical words for worldly is the word profane? Everybody say profane. He 
Hebrews says that there was a man in the Old Testament by the name of Esau who was a profane person. Why? Let me just quickly tell you the story. Esau and Jacob were brothers. Esau was the older brother. Esau had the birthright to the inheritance of the father. Esau was going to inherit everything. And one day Esau came in after a long, long trip, after a long hunting trip. It may have been days, and Esau was hungry. He was famished, and he smelled this incredible stew that Jacob, little brother, was making. He sat down at the table, and he said, give me that stew. Jacob said, okay, I'll give you the stew if you give me your birthright. Give me the inheritance of our father. What does Esau say? Well, let's look at it. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is this inheritance to me? What is that? Why was he profane? Hereism. Nowism. What good is the future? I'm hungry now. Except notice, he doesn't just say that. What does he say? This is hilarious. Esau, what a wimp. He says, I'm going to die if I don't get something, if I can't have it now. How many of you have heard people say things like that? I'm going to die if I just can't have it. Worldly people always exaggerate the here and the now. Have you noticed that? <laughs> in fact, in this way, I'd say the most secular people in the world, the most worldly people in the world are children because children, they want it when? Now. Do you remember Veruca Salt? Daddy, I want the squirrel and I want it when? Now. And you just think about that. All children do is live for now. At some point, God says, you've got to grow up. Because what does the Christian say? See, the Christian says, okay, money, material things, as great as they are, they're going to burn up. But not only do worldly people exaggerate now, nowism, hereism, but did you know that worldliness is a source of relativism? And this is all over our culture today as we think about who we're going to be. It wasn't long ago that there was at an Ivy League university a speech that was given. An administrator gave a talk. It was a major convocation. And the official said, listen to this. He said, we're going to have to start teaching values again here because there's a lack of respect for human beings. A lack of respect for property. There's too much cheating and dishonesty. There are ugly racial incidents. We're going to have to start teaching values. You know what happened? One student stood up and said, okay, whose values? Everybody started clapping. And the speaker went and sat down, stumped. He put his face down. He was totally confused. Do you know why he was confused? Do you know why the speaker was so confounded? It was because he, along with the student, they had the same worldview, and that is that this world is all there is. And I'm going to say to you right now, if this world is all there is, then values are just your personal feelings and they mean nothing. But if there's a God, if there's a God that made you and has defined what the purpose of life is, then values transcend your feelings. And he spells out what those values should be and we conform to him, his image. We don't conform him to ours. Now, do you know what worldliness is? It is cosmic childishness. I read an article. It was by a doctor. He was also a professor at a med school. He works at a clinic. Listen to this. He treats AIDS patients, and he told about one particular AIDS patient that he was treating, and he asked this AIDS patient, 
He said, have you had any sexual activity recently? And the patient said, yes. He said, did you tell your partner you're infected? He said, oh no, doctor, that would have broken the mood. My urges, my needs, now cosmic childishness. So see, the question for us today is, in a world like this, how, how we ought to live? What kind of vision should guide us? And so I just ask, how was our church supposed to be a little different? And I'm gonna have you write three things down and then we're gonna close. We'll go through these very quickly. Are you ready? Everybody say, I'm ready. All right, here we go. How are we gonna be different at North Point? That's really the question I wanna ask. And I hope you take these to heart. Number one, I'd say this. We will be different as a church in our attitude toward material things. Write that down. We will be different in our attitude toward material things. Now, by the way, this is what we referred to a couple months ago when we did, do you remember our Come and See campaign? And we spent so much time talking about vision and generosity and the need for us to invest our money in building a building and a campus expansion for the sake of ministry and doing a better job of proclaiming the gospel because the gospel is what matters most. And so people begin to invest. And the question we asked is, are you willing to invest money now to make that happen? Are you willing to pledge? It was the coolest thing, by the way. There, there in fact, not only did we, did we get lots of commitments, I'll talk about that in, the, in a minute, but I read some testimonies of some kids this morning. I mean, it's, kids set such an example. There was a young lady who for her birthday, she got $200. You know what she said to her mom and dad? She said, I'm not gonna tithe off that $200. She says, I want to give 50% of that $200. And she gave a $100 bill, a little kid, to the campaign. Isn't that amazing? Now the question is, what do you do with $100? What do you do with it? We've all had at least this at some point, I think. Are you gonna put $100 into something that you'll consume? Something that will be gone, the material? Or do you put your money into something that lasts forever? By the way, talking about come and see, I see Jay over there, brother. Uh, Jay tells me that we are about to get permits. Second week of August, we will have our permits for the come and see uh, campaign. Pretty amazing. So that's exciting because then it's just a matter of uh, months before we're able to really get rolling here. By the way, I don't know if you noticed, but last week it was the coolest thing. Uh, we were actually serving coffee with uh, one of the machines that we pre-purchased for the coffee shop, and it was really, really good if you had a chance. In fact, here's a picture of Pastor Steve and Kyle. That is Kyle's baby right there, that coffee machine. So uh, if you have a chance to pick some up, but let me just show you where we're at, by the way, with this campaign, Investing into Eternity. We've got, uh, we have had $3.8 million. I understand from Susan, it's actually closer to $4 million now, pledged of 4.5. We have in hand $2.3 million, and, uh, and it's just growing. I actually don't have the latest numbers. But, but see, it's because people caught a vision to say, in our first six months of the year, I want to invest in eternity. I believe in sharing the gospel. I believe in creating an atmosphere at North Point Church that people want to come and experience an environment that will encourage them to know Jesus. It's awesome. 
What do you do with your money? You know, uh, there was an article, I, I'll never forget it, it was back in the uh, early 90s. I don't know if you saw, it was about Daryl Strawberry. How many remember Daryl Strawberry, of course? And Howard Johnson that owns uh, the Howard Johnsons. Um, and uh, they, both of them professed to be born-again Christians. And a reporter wrote about them, and he could barely contain his disdain. He said, these highly paid people are going to tithe. They said, do you know how much money that is? I'm going to tell you why. He was, he was so incredulous, and the reason is because a worldly mindset cannot possibly support heavy generosity. Somebody who lives in nowism, somebody who lives in here and now is all that matters, they would never consider contributing something like that. Now, guilt works for a while. You can make a worldly person feel guilty, and they may give for a while, but a Christian person says, this isn't my money, first of all. This is not mine, it's God's. And I want to give to something that's going to last. See, do you understand what I'm saying? Listen to me. The Christian person is saying, right now counts, but right now counts forever. Come on. That's why when we talk about, for example, uh, this Lifeway Baptist Church and expanding to this campus, we're just thinking opportunity to continue to spread the gospel with the members of that church. And we see vision. But the generosity of those members to say, you know what, we want to open up our doors and invite you to join us. And we become a part of you and you become a part of us. It's the reason why we've, we've talked to you about this growing vision that we want you to vote on. Because a Christian person says, five billion years from now, I want to know well, first of all, the Christian person says five billion years from now, I know I'm going to be a conscious person and I know I'm going to be alive. So I want to know that that short life on earth made a difference. That's why we're asking you to vote. Because the Christian person says, I want to know that what I did today built into somebody tomorrow. I want to be proud of what I did five billion years from now. Now, that's the first way we're different and that we should be different. Number two, write this down. How are we going to be different? That we'll be different in our attitude toward uncertainty. Write that down, that we'll be different in our attitude toward uncertainty. Now, do you know, by the way, what worry is called in the Bible? Worry is called the cares of the world. Isn't that interesting? When you worry, you're concerned with the cares of what? This world. Listen very carefully because people are so given to worry. Have you heard people say, man, if this happens, it's going to be the what? End of the world. And I'm going to admit to you right now if this world is all there is, <laughs> if what defines you is your current relationship, if what defines you is your professional success, if what defines you is your money, if that's all you are, if you're just molecules, if all you are, Listen, if you're just chemicals and you're going to become chemicals again, then I would understand you saying, this is the end of the world. But do you know what the Christian can literally say? <laughs> the Christian could look at every circumstance in their life and say, nothing is the end of the world. <laughs> if that happens, this is the end of part of this world. But if you say, if this is the, if you say, man, if that happens, it's the end of the world, I want you to see that that statement betrays you. That's the essence of worldliness. This is it. This is all there is. God says, no. You know what a Christian can look at? Wait, listen, 
If you're here and you're a Christian and you start to get panicky, you can say nothing is the end of the world. This is only the end of this world. And God has so much more for me than this. My world is so much bigger than that. Don't you see? The mark of a Christian is a mindset of stability. It's courage. The Christian stands back and looks at the big picture and says, man, this is only part of reality. There's a whole other reality. There's God, and he's in control, and no matter what, I want to please him. You know, during our Come and See campaign, I didn't, I didn't get the opportunity to share this with you because I ran out of time. But, you know, at that time when we were reminding people to give above and beyond our normal tithes and our offerings um, for this gospel venture that we're going to do together, I got this letter, and I'm not going to name their names, but it was from a couple in our church that are members of our church. And they said, we're excited about the future and vision of the North Point team. Seeing how Come and See opens doors for ministry and service opportunities is amazing. I was out of town yesterday. We served at the services so we couldn't turn in a commitment card. Well, in hindsight, that's good because our commitment needs more explaining than this card has room for. And then he he goes on to explain, and I just want to read this to you. He says, repeatedly throughout our marriage, God has called us to sacrificial giving, complete and total reliance on him. Sometimes the amount made sense to us. Sometimes we just went with it and expected God to fill in the gaps. Through each step of faith, our hope has been that we would be able to become capacity givers. Last year, God began to stir me about what capacity giving really means. What if I gave away more than we actually made in 2021? But I didn't think much about it until you presented this project. Come and see. I had a strong sense of what our commitment was to be, but I also knew my wife, and I hadn't discussed my secret thoughts. Men, listen, it is always a good idea to discuss your secret thoughts, all right? And all the ladies said? He said, I hadn't discussed my secret thoughts or wrestling with God until I showed her notes I had taken the month before. My first question to her was something to the effect of, what's your number? Without me swaying your thoughts or influencing the conversation, what do you believe we're supposed to do? After hesitating for just a minute because she expected to surprise me, she said the, name num- the same number that I had been thinking and written down. We walked out that night with the number $170,000 over three years. Then he says, Shane, I'm just going to tell you that that number doesn't make any sense in any way, shape, or form. Last year before expenses, the total receipts in my business was 150000 There is margin to tighten things up, but there's not that much margin. So I studied, listen to this, so I studied God's word, the building of the tabernacle, to see what God did for Israel. Then I went to my business coaches so that we could find a way to do what we feel called to do. The plan is going to take time and require that I retool most of my business and how I provide services. But we believe it's possible over the next three years in faith, we're going to give $170,000 to gospel work. Isn't that amazing? Now, what's amazing about that is that is a total step of faith. He says, I don't even know what to expect. This is a whole new level of faith for us. But if you'll believe with us, For this crazy number that it's attainable, we're committed to going with you and believing all the way. Isn't that awesome? Where does that come from? 
That comes from a mind of stability that says, Jesus, you own it all anyway. So if I'm gonna dream, I might as well just dream big and go for it, see what happens. Number three, write this down. Write this down. How are we gonna be different? We're not just different in our attitude toward uncertainty, but we're gonna be different in our attitude toward glitz and glam. (laughs) We're gonna be different. The church will be different. We should be different. You know why? Listen to this. Jesus come to, the brothers of Jesus come to him and say, Jesus, you don't do things the right way. Jesus says, that's right. I don't. And you look at everything about Jesus' life. Jesus' entire life was designed to contradict the world's understanding of what is chic and what is charismatic and what is right. Listen to me. Jesus was born in the wrong place. He was born into the wrong kind of family. He conducted his ministry in the wrong place. You're going to see that when we go to Israel. Listen, Jesus did everything wrong. Why? Because Christians don't need to play the world's game of fashion statements. Christians don't need to play the world's game of sex appeal. We don't need the chicness. You know, there's a place in Romans 13 where Paul writes to the church and he says, you know the time that the hour is already here for you, the church, to wake up from your sleep. Salvation is near. Have you ever thought about that? He uses this metaphor that the church is asleep. Well, when you're asleep, what are you attending to? Fruitless dreams. Dreams that eventually go nowhere. That's what happens when you're asleep. And you're unaware of what's truly happening in the world around you. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, wake up from your sleepiness. Wake up to reality. And what are the results if you do? What does Jesus teach us? A couple things, and we'll close with these. First, he says, the world's not going to understand you. (laughs) How many of you have experienced this already? Relatives can't understand why you live the way you live. Come on, anybody out there? Why are you serving the church? Why are you giving this money away? And, and, you know, people start, hey, what kind of a cult do you belong to? I'll never forget, there was a guy that was coming to early morning prayer. We have it Tuesdays, Thursdays, 6 a.m. He was coming every day. He said his wife was saying, you belong to a cult that you would go in the morning and get up that early and go to prayer. You're in a cult. He said, Shane, she says I'm in a cult. He looks at me as a new believer. He says, am I in a cult? (laughs) No, nobody's forcing you to come, bro. You don't have to come. God loves you the same. But if you want to come, they're not going to understand. They're going to say something's wrong with you. You know, I heard about a great policeman. I just got to tell you this. He became a Christian and he decided to simply turn in the money he was getting through the prostitution racket because he became a Christian. Now, here's what I mean by that. He said every time he and his partner would leave the patrol car and come back, money would be stashed all over the car with little notes from the pimps saying, This is from so-and-so on this corner. Please stay off this corner. Now, he said everybody in the department just naturally considered that cash like their tips. So when he started turning it in, there was tremendous heat on him. Now, what was he doing? Don't you see what he was doing? He was saying, look, this money is great. But how's that going to look from eternity? Is this justice? Are these pimps really doing a good job in building up the lives of women that they're working with? He began to ask, how does this look from eternity? 
And he said, I'm gonna live an eternity-based life. You know what happened to him? He got pushed right off the force. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you can't be an honest policeman. That was one case. It just meant sometimes to live an eternity-based life, what are you gonna get? Come on, what are you gonna get? Thorns. What are you gonna get? War. What are you gonna get? Stabbed. Not all the time. See, people were attracted to Jesus too. People loved him and were attracted to him. A lot of people rejected him. In the book of Acts, you see that there were people who were attracted to the church, but people also persecuted the church. I'm gonna say this to you. If you're here and you're always being persecuted, that's all you ever are, it's probably because you're obnoxious. But if you're here and you're never persecuted, come on, I want you to think about that. If you're here and you never suffer anything for the sake of Jesus' name, maybe you're not obnoxious, but I'll tell you what you are. You're a coward. Because you're not standing up when God says, stand up and be the person that I've called you to be. Those people that were awed by Jesus, it's because they saw something in his life that was how it's supposed to be. There were people repelled by him, but ultimately you have to be like Christ. And if you do, what do you have to look forward to? The Bible says rejoice. Rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. Why? Because write this down. Persecution now brings great reward in eternity. And what is that reward? What is the reward you could know you get if you suffer now to invest in then? What is it? Paul says, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human heart has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying, you can't imagine. Do you know how great it's gonna have to be for him to say, you know, I I think of Han Solo in Star Wars when he said, I don't know, I can imagine an awful lot, you know. It's like, no, he says, you can't imagine it. The unmixed joy, the wonder, the purity, the glory. He says, it's all yours. Do you know what we're supposed to do in the here and now? We're supposed to let that overwhelm us, the glory of what's coming. Some of you, you say, man, pastor, if I were just a better person, then people would see the truth. And, and the truth is, I'm, I feel guilty right now, but I'm so convicted if I were just a better person. And I just want to say, no, not necessarily. How about Jesus? He was a pretty good person, <laughs> but he didn't convince everybody. But he does know what it's like to be isolated. He does know what it's like to be misunderstood And you know what Jesus is looking at you and saying? He's saying today as a church, he's saying to me, he's saying to you, he's saying, I need you to drink from the same bitter cup that I drink from. In your own way, in your own time, I need you to be willing to do that. He knows what it's like to talk to people and feel like he's talking into thin air. And so what you say is, Jesus, I'm gonna go and pour my life out to you. And you know the amazing thing of this passage? We read this passage Jesus says, my time is not yet. He says, even though the world hates me, I'm not going to Jerusalem yet. Do you know why he said that? Because he had an appointment with death so that he could pay for your sin and my sin. So that we could be made right with Jesus Christ. In other words, you don't come to God because you do it all perfectly. 
You come to God because you believe and you recognize what Jesus did on the cross, his sacrifice for sin, that death is enough for me. And God says, come to me by grace and I'll receive you. Isn't that awesome? I wanna pray for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for every person here. Thank you, Jesus, that you love them and you've called them. I pray that you would just make yourself known to them, make yourself real to them in this moment and that they would know you and walk with you. Father, would you just help us in our commitment to you and to think about how we can continue to be in 2022, the church that you've called us to be, the people you've called us to be. That Lord, we'd be distinct and different, but it'd be exciting. I pray we'd be so excited about what you have as we make commitments that are beyond us. Help us to commit beyond ourselves our time, our money, our attitude, giving ourselves to you completely in faith. Lord, give it to us and we give you the praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. God bless you guys.